0: So in Washington, D.C., they have an underground system, a bit like the the Tube in London. It's called the Metro, and one of the stations is called L'Enfant Plaza, uh, which is right in the busy bit in central D.C. It's where all the political workers would get off in the morning, get on after work, on, on their way to work. And One cold January morning at this Metro station, there was a young man turned up with a violin and everything about this guy looked about as ordinary as it's possible to look he was wearing a plain white t-shirt he had some jeans on he had a baseball cap covering some kind of shaggy hair and he opened his violin case up he he got a few coins out of his pocket he threw them uh, in the case in the hope that it looked like some other people had been generous uh, and then he started busking there in the metro station. His music started to fill the station through the corridors up the escalators all through the station you could hear this violin music. Now the man in question was a violinist whose name was Joshua Bell and if you know anything about uh, that kind of music you might have heard the name because he's one of the most respected most renowned violinists in the whole World. In fact, three days before he turned up at this metro station in D.C., he was at the Boston Symphony Hall playing to a sellout crowd who'd paid a hundred dollars a ticket in the cheap seats to come and see him. That's the level of violinist we're talking. Now, the piece that he started playing was called Chaconne, and it was by uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, part of uh, Partition number two in D minor. When I came across this story, I didn't know what it was. So I, I wanted to listen to this piece. And I put it on and I started listening and honestly, I'm not one for violin music normally, but I was just blown away by the beauty. Of this piece and now I did a little bit of research into it and I found that the piece was written to be played just by one single violin. Most pieces of classical music are designed for multiple instruments all complementing each other. This piece was written just for one violin to provide the full depth of musical Experience. It's recognised as one of the most beautiful pieces of music in the world and also as one of the most complex and difficult pieces of music to play. There's only a handful of people in the whole world who are capable of playing this and doing justice to it. Joshua Bell is one of them. Well, the the violin that he took out of his case and started playing was an instrument that was worth three million dollars. It was a top of the range violin. So there he is in his jeans and t-shirt and baseball cap with his multi-million dollar violin playing one of the hardest and most beautiful pieces at its highest level it can be played at. What do you think happened? People were on their way to work. The first person, the second person, the 63rd person, they just walked past. No one even noticed. No one even batted an eyelid. Nobody was aware what was happening in their midst. And it took until person number 64 before there was any reaction at all. And that reaction was a little double take and then carrying on walking as though, oh, he's probably a bit better than most buskers, but not enough to do anything. In total, Joshua Bell was there at the metro station for 43 minutes playing piece after piece of uh, the highest caliber violin music that there was. During that time, 1,100 people passed through that station. Seven of them stopped to have a little listen. Just seven. A few of them gave him some money. He made $32.17 in total. That's less than a third of the cost of a ticket that people were tripping over themselves to buy a few nights earlier. 1,070 of them paid absolutely no attention whatsoever to what was happening. I wonder why. I wonder why so many people just passed on by. Now, I thought maybe people are busy. They're on their way to work. They've got high-pressure jobs. I bet that's part of the reason. Maybe they were distracted. I bet some of them were walking by in their phones. Some of them had their headphones in. Some were in conversation maybe with people they were with. And so they had their eyes on other things. I think maybe that was part of it as well. But I wonder if the main reason why only seven people stopped the main reason why he only made about $30 is because he didn't look like anything special. Because he was just wearing his T-shirt and his baseball cap and his jeans. He wasn't in a suit. There wasn't lighting on him. He wasn't raised up on a platform. Had those things happened, maybe they'd be the markers that people needed to see to be like, wow, this is impressive. This is worth stopping. This is worth looking at. But because the outside appearance didn't look special, nobody noticed what was truly happening. I actually don't blame those 1070 people because I imagine if I was in that situation what would I have done? Honestly I'd have probably done the same. I probably wouldn't have noticed i I've probably missed this opportunity to see in the flesh a world class performance. We all do it don't we? We'll look at situations based on how they look on the outside and we'll get the wrong idea. We'll be deceived and we'll miss something important. I want to tell you about one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Uh, This is an Old Testament character called David. Now, you might have heard of David. He's famous for David and Goliath, that story. We're not talking about that story today. But I find this character, David, one of just the most relatable figures in the whole of the Bible. He wrote most of a book called Psalms, which is basically songs and prayers that he wrote. And some of them he wrote being like, God, I'm really excited. Everything's going well. I praise you, God. And other days he's like, God, everything sucks. Life's just terrible. And he goes through the ups and downs of life. We see uh, some days he's really kind of passionate in his faith. Other days he does really stupid stuff. He's so human. And he's so relatable. I really relate to David. At the same time, though, David is such a good picture of Jesus as well. So much of what he does is like a a little picture in miniature of what Jesus would later do. And so I can look at David and see so much of myself. And I can also look at him and see so much that turns my attention to Jesus. And so this term here in the evening meeting at Christ Church Manchester, uh, we're going to be looking a bit at the story of this guy, David and we're going to pick out what we've called 10 rules for life and these are 10 little principles, observations, things that we notice in David's story that we reckon if if we can get these into our head and into our hearts then it will set us up well for life and so we're going to look at these from some of the different stories and the first rule for life that we're picking out and this is the one that I'm focusing on this evening was set up by my opening story and it's this, don't be deceived by appearances. Don't be deceived by appearances. I'm going to read from the Bible. I'm going to read the first chunk of David's story. This is where he first appears in the bible and it's in a book of the bible called one samuel so if you've got a bible with you and you'd like to turn to chapter 16 of one samuel you're very welcome to do so if you've not brought a bible with you no worries at all because i've put the verses up on the screen behind me so you could follow along on there as well if that's what you'd rather do so i'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 13 the lord said to samuel How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, And invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, well, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. there's our story okay let let me just kind of give you a little bit of background unpack exactly what was happening there so this story was written about 3,000 years ago it's a true story it was from ancient Israel and for a long time ancient Israel had been a place where they hadn't really had kings they'd not been like most of the other countries around them they just kind of got by, they muddled through without anyone really in charge. And when they got in trouble, God would like raise up some uh, hero who would save the day and kind of rule for a bit until they died and then things would simmer back down and then things would go wrong again and it'd keep going around this cycle for a while. But eventually, they got a king and the name of that king was Saul. And honestly, Saul was the most obvious candidate for king in the world, I don't know if any of you are into like American high school movies and TV shows, but you've got that like one cliché guy, haven't you? Who's uh, he's the captain of the football team, he's the prom king, he's the one uh, who's dating the cheerleader, and all of this and everything about him is like, well, that's obviously the guy. Saul was that guy in Israel. He was the one who everyone's attention would turn to. He was apparently head and shoulders taller than everyone else. So if you're in a room full of people, he's just massive. Everyone's looking at him. The way he carries himself just looks kingly. He's got authority about him. He's got leadership vibes about him. He's good at fighting. All the stuff you'd won. So he became king. And it was an absolute shipwreck. It was a disaster. He was rubbish at being the king. For Darren Sullivan, uh, who's a Christian blogger, he wrote about it and he said, Saul was not a great king, nor was he even a good man. He was deeply flawed. The entire first half of Samuel is dedicated to a character study about his failures. In essence, Saul's root character flaw is self-exaltation and self-deception he thinks he knows better than everyone else including God and the biggest tragedy is that he's not even aware of it the story shows he's completely blind to his arrogance and always believes he's in the right so that's the kind of guy that he was and so what would happen is God would keep telling him to do stuff and he'd keep kind of Just changing it and not quite doing it the way he was meant to, and making things go wrong. And time and time again, he would do this. And after one time too many of disobeying God, it's like God said to him, All right, I'm done with this. Saul, if you don't want to do things my way, so be it. You're on your own. I'm not helping you anymore. I'll anoint someone else who will be king in future, who will be my king, who will do things my way. Saul, you're on your own now, mate. So that's Saul. He's still around, but God's not helping him anymore. God has got a job vacancy for a new king, someone who will reign in future. And God says, I'll put my Holy Spirit on this new king. That means I'll help them. I'll be with them. I'll guide them. I'll show them what to do. I'll give them the help that Saul didn't want from me. Now just imagine for a second that you are working in recruitment and uh, you get a contract through that you've got to find the person who can fill this vacancy, who can be the next king. What would you look for? If you were designing the person specification to go with the job description, what are the essential characteristics? What are the desirable characteristics? I was having to think about this. I would probably want someone who commands the respect of the people. If you're going to be a king, you've got to be able to do that. I'd want someone inspiring. I'd want someone with good leadership capacity. I'd definitely want someone good at war. We're talking 3,000 years ago. War happened a lot. If you were bad at war, you wouldn't be good at being a king. Probably want someone with charisma. Probably even want someone tall. You know, it seems like a big thing in the story and actually it's a big thing today. I saw uh, this stat: apparently 58% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are over six feet tall. That's ludicrous when you think what a small percentage of the uh, actual population it is. But people seem to think tall people are good at leading. It keeps coming up in this story as well. But I think when I, when I reflect on it and when I'm like, what would I be after? I've basically just described Saul. I want Saul 2.0. I want the guy who was rubbish at the job. Basically, him again is what I'm looking for. Well, God has his own headhunter. He has someone uh, that he sent with the task of finding the new king, and that is Samuel. And God told Samuel, I want you to go to a specific house, and this is the house of a bloke called Jesse. Uh, And Jesse's got a whole bunch of sons, and you'll find one of his sons there, and that's who... I've got in mind so uh, they organize this banquet they bring the sons in and they're presented one by one to Samuel and first in line is Eliab and he really looked the part he had the appearance of a king he uh, it says he was tall he, he ticked that box he had stature about him he had king vibes basically you looked at him and you're like yeah he'll do he will be the king and God says to Samuel I don't want you to look at that stuff Actually, tall doesn't matter on our list of kingly qualities. Physical appearance, outward impressiveness, that's not what I'm after. You, you don't look at that stuff in him, Samuel. There's something else that I'm after. When I first moved up to Manchester about 10 years ago, I read a story in the local newspaper uh, about some guy up in Cheatham Hill who'd been ripping people off, basically, selling uh, tablets, phones, laptops, all sorts of stuff. Uh, And what he'd done is he'd taken loads of boxes of Apple products and filled them with polystyrene and sand and resealed them, and people were paying for them, Uh, and then he was kind of uh, running off with their money the outside looked fine the box looked like everything you'd want but there was nothing inside and God's saying when you're just looking at Eliab and Saul and these outwardly impressive people it's a little bit like that it's a little bit like a a macbook box filled with sand and polystyrene it's not quite up to the job well so and they go down the line and next up is Abinadab and he looks a bit kingy as well but it's not him, and Shammah also kind of looks the part, but no, it's not him either, and they go through all seven, and it's no, 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 all the way down the line, every one of them, God says to Samuel, this isn't the one that I've got in mind, well, Samuel's there, he's pretty confident that God said it will be one of Jesse's sons, and he's pretty confident that every time it's a no, so he's like there must be someone else, there must be another son, have you got any other sons, Jesse, and He did. He had one more son called David, who was so unlikely an option, who was so uh, far from consideration, it hadn't even occurred to Jesse to bring him along. He was just not the guy to be king. Now, I think that seems a bit harsh, you know. If if my dad had been told that one of his kids was going to be king, and he didn't even invite me, I might be a bit knocked off about that. (laughs) But I don't think it was meant to be cruel. I think it was just a practical thing. David just didn't seem like the kingly type. And I'll give you three reasons why David probably wouldn't have been considered as a serious option. And number one is that he was too young. Because at this point in the story, David was 15 years old, right? So if you want to be taken seriously as kind of a a big national power to fight your enemies, and you get this 15-year-old kid as the king, then you just wouldn't think that's what you would do but I reckon one of the biggest fallacies that there is when it comes to God when people think about how God works and what he does is that people sometimes think you've got to be a certain age for God to do stuff in your life and that just isn't true. It's just not true. God doesn't only work with older people. He doesn't only work with people with more experience, more training, who've been around the block a few times. I can give you some examples from the Bible if you want. Think about uh, the book of Daniel. So you've got Daniel, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're brought from their homes to to university in Babylon. They're at the age of many of you who are students, and they stand up for for God in the face of uh, a culture that just didn't want them to do it and they make a difference and they have influence in their culture. Think about the uh, apostles who uh, went round with Jesus. Tim was talking a bit this morning about Jesus calling the disciples to drop their nets and follow him. Jesus would have been about 30 years of age at that time And the disciples would have been younger. So we're talking a bunch of guys. A lot of them would have been in their 20s. Some of them, it's believed, were in their late teens. This was the group that Jesus got to follow him. They spent three years learning from him, doing miracles, preaching the gospel, healing the sick. And then Jesus died, rose again, ascended to heaven and says, guys, it's on you now. Go to every nation of the world and tell them about what I've done. And they did it. And the world was changed. I think about Mary the mother of Jesus. How old was she? 13, 14 years old. And the angel appears to her and she says, yes, let it be to me according to what God has said. And she plays an incredible part in the story of God redeeming the world. Think about Queen Esther. Again, she'd have been maybe 14, 15 years old when she was brought into service of the king. And she stood before the king of the most powerful empire in the world. And uh, she, she made the request that resulted in the freedom for her people or not just examples from the Bible think about some examples from history I don't know how many of you have heard of Evan Roberts now uh, just over 100 years ago Evan Roberts was a 13 year old kid living in Wales who just had a heart to pray for his nation and he started praying for Wales from the age of 13 by the time he was 26 He'd seen revival come, and a lot of it centred around the church that he was ministering at. He'd been praying as a teenager, and he saw revival in his 20s. Think about the Wesley brothers. They were at Cambridge University when they met with God. John Wesley went around preaching to thousands and thousands and thousands, leading people to Christ. Charles Wesley was a songwriter, wrote many of the songs we still write today. Charles Spurgeon started preaching at 16 years old. By the age of 20, he was the leader of the largest church in England. Jackie Pullinger, God first spoke to her when she was a kid. And at 22 years old, she went to serve him in Hong Kong. Billy Graham preached his first sermon at 19 and carried on doing it for the rest of his life. And saw millions of people gave their life to Jesus. God works with young people, amen? People wrote David off because of his age and I think that just shows they didn't really understand God and how he works you know Bob Roberts said that Jesus movements surge from the young and at CCM that's something we wholeheartedly believe that's why we wanted to start a site here in proximity to the university we love it when God gets a hold of young people and does stuff in your lives you know uh, one time one of my favorite things that's ever happened at CCM was when we got a guy who just started uni come to us and say I'd love to plant a church in my halls of residence. It was just such an inspiring thing. And he ended up leading an alpha in the hall, setting up a community group there. I think he persuaded the uni to pay for the wine at the alpha. It was just incredible. But God works, you know. And they thought David was too young, but they were wrong. Well, here's the second thing, right, why David wasn't considered. He just didn't look the part. Remember tallness? He, He wasn't that tall. He was pretty sure he was just an ordinary kid now it says he was good looking in a kind of baby-faced way but he didn't really have the the king vibes that you'd be after he was a little bit like Joshua Bell I guess an ordinary guy just looked like a normal person no one had a clue that he was anything else I wonder if when you think about yourself you you wonder that you might not stand out as the obvious one. Maybe you think about that person in your halls of residence or your workplace or whatever it might be as, well, they're the obvious one who something would happen in. They're, they're the one who everyone wants to be friends with and they're the one who's super talented and always really good at their work and they're the one who's good looking, whatever it might be. You might be, it's not me, I'm just kind of the background person. They're the special one. Well, David, he didn't quite The bill, and I I think there, there perhaps are some here who this is just a word for today. If you think no, it would be someone else, it wouldn't be me. Let me just say to you, God wants to work through you, He does, He wants to work through you. And then, thirdly, I think the reason why David might not have been considered was his lack of qualifications. He didn't tick the boxes good at war, he'd never been to war, good at leadership. He could lead sheep, that was about it. He was a shepherd boy. He didn't really talk to people very much. He didn't take any of the things on the job description. And if he turned up to the interview and they said, look, what are the main strengths you would bring to the king job? And he's like, well, I can play the liar. I know how to nurse a poorly lamb back to health, and I'm good with a slingshot. If that was what he brought to the, the interview, he's not going to get the job, is he? He didn't tick all the boxes that would normally be expected of a king. And yet that didn't stop God from choosing him for the role. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying it's bad to learn how to do stuff and get qualified. You know, if you fancy yourself as a worship leader, a few guitar lessons would not go amiss. But David, he just didn't seem out to be king not yet anyway now eventually as you read on in the story you see he developed all of this stuff but at this point he just didn't have it and i once heard christine kane say god doesn't call the qualified he qualifies the called well if we see that in david's life david didn't have the qualifications at this moment but god called him and then god gave him everything he needed to do the job well hey we know how the story turned out despite all of this stuff we know that it was David who God chose these external things were not decisive so what was what was the important thing about David and we're told in verse 7 it says the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart so it wasn't about his age his stature or his skills because God saw right to the core of David and when he saw David's heart he was like yes yeah here's a guy that I can work with so what did he see well he saw a guy who because he'd had this job of looking after the sheep and often he had to be out in the fields all night on his own what David would do is just he'd take his lyre he'd start uh, singing songs to God and he'd start writing songs for God and playing songs For God, he was a worshipper in his heart. Not just a worshipper when everyone gathers together and it's the done thing. But just in the quiet moments, he learned from his heart to worship God. And God saw faith. God saw someone who would trust him. Because there were moments that he was out in those fields where the sheep would get attacked. Where lions would come. Where bears would come. Where big scary animals would come to try and take away his sheep. And David had to fight them off. And he did so, trusting in God when challenges came and god saw humility because david hadn't rushed forward and said hey hey there's king auditions i want to be at the front of the line he just humbly stayed there in the field until he was called god saw his heart jenny allen's a christian author and she said throughout scripture god seems to care more about the state of this unseen place in us our hearts rather than what everybody else can see in our behavior. While while we judge each other by what we can see, God looks deep inside of us and sees what nobody else sees. There was a work on the inside going on in David that was far more important than any of those qualifications he might have been lacking externally. He was willing to be God's guy. And that makes such a difference. In fact, God himself in the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And I think, wow, what a thing to hear God say, this person's after my own heart. A friend of CCM's, a guy called Topicolioso, leads a church in London, and uh, he was describing this. And he said, to be after God's heart means to be relentless in the pursuit of God. It means to have a heart that is shaped by God, and it means to have a heart that is shaped You know, when Jesus was going around, there were some people in his day called the Pharisees. They were religious people and they looked super impressive. They'd do things like pray in public loudly, using long fancy words, and they'd make everyone else feel just a little bit inadequate. They'd give money to the poor, lots of money to the poor, as long as everybody else could see them do it. They make sure everybody else was obeying every single rule they could find. They were externally very impressive. And yet Jesus kept crossing swords with them. And he's like, guys, you might look good on the outside, but I know what's going on in your heart. You're just proud. It's just about building yourself up. It's just about looking good to other people. Jesus actually called them whitewashed tombs because there's nothing in the inside. It's just dead. It's just rotten. They might have been impressive on the outside, but they didn't have this David heart, this heart after God's own heart about my own life when I was younger. You know, I really wanted to be impressive. I really wanted everyone to look on me and think of me a certain way. I wanted to be able to speak in a certain way. I wanted to be able to lead in certain contexts. The older I get, the less bothered I am about that stuff. Now I just want to be God's guy. I just want to have a work of God on the inside and do what he wants me to do and live my life for him. As you envisage this year ahead in your life, Why not make it a year to grow your heart in God? So that God looks at you and says, that's my guy, that's my girl, that person. Their heart is after my heart. You probably have some moments this year that are pretty mundane, that are pretty boring, where you've just got to do the things that need to be done. Like David up in the field with the sheep. Why not use those moments to just, in the quiet place, worship God? You probably have moments this year of challenge where things get tough, where things are difficult. Why not use those moments to build your faith, to trust God, to bring you through. God looked at David's heart and he liked what he saw. That's an incredible thing. Don't be deceived by appearances. Man looks at the outside, but God's focused on the heart. You know, Jesus himself, by appearances, He wasn't a lot, was he? I mean, he wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't anything special. He was born in a stable, for goodness sake. And he grew up in a backwater town in Galilee. So kind of bad was its reputation that someone said to him, can anything good come out of Galilee? It wasn't a place you'd expect someone impressive to come from. And those followers, they weren't people who'd got degrees. They weren't people who'd had a lot of training. They were ordinary, unimpressive people. He didn't really meet the job description for Messiah at all. He didn't really um, have the, the impression of someone who could overthrow the enemies, who could lead a military conquest, which people expected. So people looked at him. They looked at him outwardly and rejected him. And they missed the heart of what God was doing. And then he went and he died on a cross. Now just look at that. The leader of this movement, who people are saying, this is God's king just gets killed and dies. That doesn't look very impressive. and Yet at the heart of it, that was the triumph of God because as Jesus died, all sin, all death, all the enemies of God were defeated. He took our sin on himself. He died with it so that it's gone from us and we could be brought into relationship with God. His defeat at the cross was actually the victory for those who could see to the heart of it. So you're here this evening. Some of you have been around... For a while, some of you might be new. You've turned up uh, into Manchester in the last few weeks. And my message to you this evening is simple. Don't write off what God can do with your life. Don't write off what God can do with your life. I love the story of Victoria Armstrong. Uh, It must be 20 years ago or something like that. She turned up in Manchester as a student. She, She came here, she became a Christian, she met God, and that changed her life. She ended up going to live in Gorton, uh, in East Manchester, basically because it was cheap. Uh, And then she'd lived there not long, and then she found out why it was cheap, and she uh, got to see uh, that it, it was a needy community, it was a deprived community. There was a lot of desperation there. And God broke her heart for it, and she wanted to do something for that place and she wanted to create a lifeline for people there and uh, in in a story that I'm sure at some point you'll hear her tell herself but uh, over many years she gradually built this project called the Oasis Centre and it started taking people from rock bottom and piecing them back together and it started knitting people into community and skilling people up who didn't have any skills for life and helping people work and leading people to Jesus as well and, and it's now just moved into this uh, building that's just been built for it's an incredible thing that she did she turned up here as a student outwardly didn't look like much didn't look like uh, particularly uh, the kind of person who you think wow God's going to do something through her and he did because that's what he does you know I've got faith as I look around that in this room we're going to hear more stories like that we're going to hear men and women who have stories like victoria's stories like david's stories because your heart is after god's heart god works through you man looks at the outside but god looks at the heart so do not be deceived by appearances